This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Pete the Planner, USA Today money columnist and host of the Ask Pete the Planner podcast. When I'm not fixing the weirdest financial situations you've ever heard of, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and on today's show, we're asking the question, could it be that you're your own worst enemy when investing? Here to explore that, we welcome the man behind the book, the behavioral investor, Dr. Daniel Crosby. In headlines, Morningstar has just completed a report on the health savings account landscape. Here to talk about the good, bad, and ugly in HSAs, we welcome from Morningstar, Leo Atchison. We'll also throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener and still share some of our best trivia since, eh, well, well, Monday. And now, two guys who Joe's mom describes as their own worst enemies, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to Thanksgiving leftovers. I cannot stay out of my own way. I've been trying to start my new workout program since January. Oh, it's so since January. I thought you meant like in the last week. (laughs) Well, close to that in the last 11 months. Close. Yeah. The good news is, is that I can end this struggle and I can start anew in a few weeks. (laughs) It's fantastic. Just put this to bed and go, yup, miss that one. Miss that one. Another year. Yeah. Well, let's try this for the 22nd time. See if we can finally get this right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the uh, New Year's Resolutions Gone Bad podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across from me, not the fake OG on Twitter. It's the real, the authentic, the except no counterfeits OG. No wooden nickels. 
None. No. My grandpa would say. No wooden OGs. And then that's, that's not good. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a weird statue you pray to or something. Yeah. You know, I say, yeah, like I'm not even listening because I'm searching for the worst transition ever. Like, how do I get from there to magnify money? What do I do? You know what you do. You just go there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money is the place to go when you're looking for the best in those financial products you use every day, like your savings account, checking account, student loan refinance options, credit card options. It's all there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money for more. I've got a action-packed show today, OG, to get close to the end of November. We almost have only one month to go in this thing. That's amazing. And then we get to start all over again. 2018 was amazing. Just an amazing year. Did I tell you I went to Bavaria? I heard. Yeah. Yep. Uh, maybe I'll share some slides from that vacation in a little bit here, but first, the headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines. In our first headline, this is uh, by Tobias Salinger, comes to us from financialplanning.com. LPL looks to train veterans as advisors in new hiring push. You know how financial services firms having some trouble getting people in the right places? LPL looking to train veterans. Isn't that cool? I like it. So far, so good. LPL Financial and the U.S. Army Reserve are teaming up to build a one-year apprenticeship program training soldiers to break into the wealth management industry and become financial advisors. Largest independent broker-dealer joined the Army Reserve's private-public partnership as a corporate member aiming to pair up service members with experienced advisors at LPL's new Independent Advisor Institute. LPL and the Army Reserve unveiled the program on Veterans Day a couple weeks ago. Advisor and decorated former Army Reserve Colonel Dryden Pence, who runs Newport Beach, California-based Pence Wealth Management alongside with his wife, Layla, helped lead the way in setting up the partnership. LPL has its own military roots. Navy veterans Bob Ritzman and Al Monahan launched Forerunner Private Ledger in 1973. LPL's new veterans recruiting effort follows those of other firms. Edward Jones, started a specific training program for veterans in 2012. City and other financial services companies formed a consortium called Veterans on Wall Street, which has grown to more than 125 firms. Veterans' ability to create and carry out strategy in stressful environments, work together in teams, and handle budgets equip them for financial careers, according to Christopher Plamp, the CEO of Higher Heroes USA. Quote, we see success where companies take into consideration the other skills that veterans have, Plamp says. What I see with this program is they're giving them actual time to learn the job. I like this, by the way, whether you're a veteran or not, if you're, we get questions all the time, people saying, how do I break into the financial services area? Partner with experienced advisors. I think that's probably the number one piece of advice I could give anybody. It's interesting because how you and I were raised in the, in, raised quote, in the business is just not even an option anymore. I mean, literally handed a stack of phone numbers and a phone and said, plug this in wherever you see an open jack. Here's a blank calendar. We suggest starting with Monday. <laughs> you know, I mean, that just imagine if that was the new hire training program at any financial institution today. Uh, so you got to think outside the box a little bit when it comes to the people, too, because it's not just going to be really, really, really fantastic phone salespeople that are going to be great financial planners or, or turn into them. The fellow that I just recently hired 
got a degree in financial planning from from Texas Tech. He doesn't like that didn't exist 20 years ago. There weren't degrees in financial planning. And so as business owners, as entrepreneurs, we've got to look at other ways to engage kind of the next the next level, the next generation of people. Yeah. And I love this with the uh, with LPL looking looking at people that already have this the skill set. Well, and it's funny because it's a match made in heaven. I remember we talked to Dr. Michael Haney from Syracuse a couple of weeks ago on Veterans Day, actually, about how so many veterans struggle to join the workforce, and yet there's tons of companies that that love the skills that veterans can bring to the table. Yeah. Well, and it's not even like the skills like planning and discipline and that sort of thing. It's some of those other things like sometimes in our business, you just have to do the work. And when you're in the service, sometimes you just got to dig the hole. You don't, you don't want to do it, but you just have to. <laughs> and and I think there's some certain disposition to just go on. All right, uh, something I don't want to do right now, but I'll do it anyway. And just a different breed of people. And in our second headline, Morningstar's out with their second annual assessment of the ten largest health savings account plans. Leo Atchison from Morningstar joins us on my dad's shortwave to talk about the assessment. Hey, Leo, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm very good. This is interesting. What exactly did you look at in your assessment of health savings accounts? So we looked at 10 of the largest HSA plans that are out there and ranked them one next to another. And we actually looked at them from two different use cases because people either tend to use them as either a spending vehicle to cover current medical costs or as an investment vehicle to save for those future medical expenses in retirement. So, yeah, we looked at 10 of the largest plans and uh, essentially ranked them. Were there certain criteria inside of both of those sides, Leo, that you looked at, like maybe investment fees? Yes. So uh, as far as for a spending vehicle, so people that are essentially using it as a checking account to cover their current medical costs, the main thing that we focused on were the maintenance fees. So those are dollar-based fees range anywhere from roughly 30 to $55 a year. So those really tend to be the most significant consideration for using your HSA as a spending vehicle. There's also interest rates and then some other additional one-off fees that you might want to consider. And we did highlight those, but they're not as important of a consideration. Gotcha. On that side, before you move on to the investment vehicle side, are those fees easy for our listeners to find on HSA statements or are they usually hidden fees? We took an individual, you know, kind of retail person's perspective from this, you know, so someone that is searching for an HSA plan on their own, uh, like so not through an employer. Because of that, we tried to gather our information through going onto HSA plan websites and what we couldn't get from there, we would call into the call centers. And one major takeaway from this was that if you're not currently an account holder and you're in fact just shopping for a plan, a lot of this information is very hard to gather, especially the relevant information that you would need, such as things like fees and interest rates in order to make a good decision. So that's one thing that we did highlight in our paper and actually showed how available this information was on different websites. Well, let's talk about it from this standpoint. Which of the 10 largest uh, came out on the top? So that was the HSA Authority. It's actually the only plan that does not charge a maintenance fee. So it really allows uh, HSA spenders to stretch those healthcare dollars. I noticed you had a few that were negative also on this list. Any of these uh, particularly egregious? No, they're all pretty similar. I would say that health savings administrators in Bank of America are a little bit more expensive than further. Basically, those got negative because 
they charge a maintenance fee and uh, do not allow you to waive it. So the other plans that got neutrals, they have a maintenance fee, but you can waive it once your assets reach a certain threshold, such as $3,000 or so. Okay. Now, on the other side, is an investment vehicle, what did you look at? We looked at a few things. First of all, what's the investment menu? Generally, we're looking for an easy-to-understand menu with investment options in all the core asset classes that you would need to build a diversified portfolio at the same time without too much overlap, um, which you know, there's plenty of research that's been done that too much choice doesn't lead to good choices, right? Yeah. So that was one thing we looked at. That's, we call that menu design. Then we looked at the quality of the underlying investments. You know, Here at Morningstar, we rate a lot of mutual funds. And so we were able to leverage those ratings to get a sense for the quality of the underlying investments at each HSA plan. Of course, we looked at price. And actually, the price was the biggest differentiator among plans. So for price, it's a little bit confusing, but there are three main fees to take into consideration. There's the maintenance fee, which we had just previously talked about. So I used to think about the maintenance fee, the investment fee. Some plans charge this investment fee just for the privilege to buy a fund. And then on top of that, the underlying fund fees. So you have to add all of those up to come up with a total fee. Um, so there's, there's a pretty big variation in what plans are charging out there. When you say investment fee, is that like a load or a sales charge for when the money goes in? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, it's typically a dollar-based fee. Okay. But in some cases, it is like an expense ratio. So it's like, uh, like for instance, like 30 basis points a year just for like investment, just for the privilege to invest. So that's not the underlying fund fee. Was this, was this information also as difficult as it was on the other side, Leo, to discover for yourself if you're shopping plans? Uh, yes, absolutely. All, all of this, uh, the information in both areas was um, definitely very easy to get. Yeah. Well, luckily you guys are out with this. Let's talk about who's on top on this side. When it came to an investing vehicle, which plans did you like the best of the top 10? Yeah, so uh, what's really interesting is the HSA Authority, again, uh, we think is the best plan for an investment vehicle. Its fees are lower than than most other plans, whether you want active or passive exposure, and they have really good funds, and you can invest all of your money. As long as you have over 1000 in there, you can invest all of the money that you have. Some of these plans have a threshold that requires you to keep a couple thousand in the checking account at all times, but you know, if you're trying to maximize your investment, you'd want to invest all of it into the market. So uh, that doesn't apply here. And then other two that we liked were Bank of America and Further. So they both also offer attractive fees, considering all three of those fees that we discussed, and also have a pretty well-designed investment menu. Nice. Any of them uh, really, really horrible on the on the downside? I would say one that stands out, uh, that HSA bank is really expensive for both active and passive exposure. That one kind of stood out for, for on that front. Nice. Well, I know you guys are, are studying a lot of different things. Where can people find this specific assessment on the Morningstar site? So the URL is a bit complicated, but if you just Google 2018 health savings account landscape Morningstar, then you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Awesome. And you know what? Also, we'll have that complicated link on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com as well if you're walking the dog or on your commute. Leo Atchison, thanks for hanging out for a few minutes and uh, explaining the assessment to us. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you. Turns out all HSAs are not created equal. Hashtag shocked. (laughs) Color me impressed.
I think uh, the lesson there is maybe go to a place like Morningstar when you're looking at your HSA choices. And then uh, number two, looking at breaking into the financial services industry. Join the Marine Corps first. <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to say team up with an experienced advisor, but there's always the join the Marine Corps option. This gentleman's coming back for a second time to the Stacky Benjamin Show, and I'm so excited to talk to him again. You ever meet people and you just hit it off right away, like for very little reason? I met I met Dr. Daniel Crosby in New Orleans, and we were in a discussion with two other people, and before I knew it, we're just laughing our heads off. And he is he's got this wry sense of humor. And just this way of looking at the world. Like, I love his TED talk that's been seen by over a million people that you are not special. It just, it takes, I love that sense of humor. He was educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities. He's a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, and asset manager who applies his study of market psychology to everything from financial product design to security selection. Every time I write to him, I probably, talk to uh, Dr. Crosby, I don't know, maybe a couple times a month, and he's always on a plane going somewhere. Co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. And he's also the founder of Nocturne Capital. He's at the forefront of behavioral finance. His ideas have appeared, let's just say, everywhere, except he's only been on the Stacky Benjamin Show once. We're going to remedy that coming down to the basement, Dr. Daniel Crosby. coming down the stairs right now. It's been a while since I've seen this guy, Dr. Daniel Crosby. How are you? I am so good. Great to be here in the basement. Well, I'm, you know, we talk, I mean, fairly often, but it's exciting to see the new book out. Why a new book about behavioral investing? Because it's the only way I can get you to talk with me <laughs> is if I write a book. We never, You never call. You never write. I have to write a book. I have to write a 300-page book periodically just to get your attention. Are you proud of me yet? <laughs> it's good. I I feel like you have some mom issues or dad issues or something like that. <laughs> no, no. That uh, everyone becomes a psychologist because they're perfectly well adjusted. That's right. why we do these <laughs> Well, speaking about psychology, so I got done reading your book. I have to tell you, as you know, we just finished election season, and I think reading your book, I could have been reading about politics as much of investing, about how people hang on to their predisposed beliefs about how we don't want to work that hard to have new beliefs. Why investing instead of uh, politics with this one? Uh, you know, don't rule it out. Like one of the things that I love about psychology is since everything is kind of human behavior, we can just sort of co-opt whatever discipline we want. So, you know, don't don't rule it out. I'm a young guy. I'm I'm very <laughs> interested in politics. I can't keep myself from talking about politics. I every time I go on stage, I go, don't do it, Daniel. Like there's nothing. This will bring you nothing but sadness. And then I have to talk about politics. And you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is is conservatism and how we confuse having heard of something with it being good. And so I say, you know, this is how you get Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as your presidential candidates, because you've, you've heard of them and you confuse your familiarity with their last name with them being good. Or, you know, do you think that 
of the 370 million people in America, these are the best two candidates we have. But I would suggest to you that they're not, but we've heard of them. For you specifically, I would think watching the political news channels, though, would be just completely unnerving because you're yelling at the TV screen going, here's why you think this way, moron. No, I can't do it. You know, we don't we don't have cable and I've had to uninstall all the apps from my phone because it was just it was ruining my life. I mean, truly. <laughs> and I quit Facebook like two or three months before the election. It was really because we were having a, a third child and I was like, look, I don't have time to raise three kids and yell at my high school friends about politics too, but it was the best decision I ever made. I was like 10% happier immediately. See, I would have given up the kids, Daniel. I would have given up the kids and I would have just yelled at my friends about politics. <laughs> well, it's like I, I found myself sitting in my living room fighting with a guy from high school about politics, a guy who I had recently seen at the grocery store and didn't wave to. Because we're not friends. And I'm like, what am I doing? And that was kind of my low. That, that was my rock bottom. And then I quit. Right. I love that. Somebody had the meme recently. They said, hey, I changed somebody's mind about politics on Facebook. Said nobody ever. Oh, exactly. Well, let's get into the good stuff, which is finance and behavior. And this is phenomenal uh, stuff. But it seems like you say throughout this book that being human, the essence of who we are, is really what gets in our way as investors. Yeah, one of the big themes, I think, especially of part one of the book is that things that have led us evolutionarily to thrive have made us poor investors. And so the body is, you know, the body is made to to live and to reproduce. And so those are the traits that get passed on. And you look at something like loss aversion, you know, as recently as 18,000 years ago, there were other human species on the planet. Uh, there was a group called the Hobbits in Indonesia. There were the, the Neanderthals, you know, back before that in Europe. And the reason that scientists suggest that we lived on and they didn't among the reasons is that we were more chicken, like we were, we were more cowardly than they were. And so these guys would make big, bold, brave moves that would end in their death. And we were, we were the cowardly species that... <laughs> You know, when when the food started to run out, we're like, yeah, you know what? We're going to pack up and move on to the next place. And so this is how, you know, Homo sapiens spread. This is how Homo sapiens made conservative enough decisions to live to, to have babies and fight another day. And so, you know, the thing that made us the top of the food chain was that we were kind of chicken. And so this tendency to be loss averse is good for passing on your genes, but it's bad for compounding your wealth. But it's not going anywhere, right? Like, uh, that's, it's who we are. Yeah. You, well, you, did, you talk about that action bias a lot, that the action bias really, as an investor, we see things not going our way. We immediately, that piece of our body uh, jumps in and wants to do something. And you say that usually is what kills us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talked in my last book about how it's Wall Street bizarro world, how all the rules of investment behavior are almost 180 degrees inverse of what they are anywhere else. You know, this year, one of my physical goals is to get my bench press up. And so I go to the gym and I lift more weight. You know, you want to get stronger, you lift more weight. But in 19 different countries, the number one predictor of wealth accumulation was lack of activity. So it's like, it's totally backwards. You know, if you want to get stronger, you go to the gym more. If you want to get smarter, you read more books. 
And if you want to get richer, you do nothing. And it just it doesn't, <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. And yet there it is. Like there's the data that says uh, that Wall Street operates from a different set of rules than the rest of life. To your point, uh, just an excerpt from your book, you wrote, The fund behemoth Vanguard examined the performance of accounts that had made no changes versus those that have made tweaks. Sure enough, they found that the no change condition handily outperformed the tinkerers. Behavioral economist Mayer Statman cites research from Sweden showing that the heaviest traders lose 4% of their account value each year to trading costs and poor timing, and that these results are consistent across the globe. Across 19 major stock exchanges, investors who made frequent changes trailed buy and hold investors by one and a half percentage points per year. And I think, I think Daniel, a lot of people will say, well, one and a half percentage points, that's not that bad. But over a lifetime, you're way behind. Well, yeah, and it's monotonic. There's the word of the day, right? Which means that it proceeds in a stepwise fashion. So if, if you break up trading activity into deciles, right? So the people who trade the least do better than those who trade the most and, and so on and so forth through each of those deciles, it just steps down. And so that 4%, you know, that 4% delta between the most active and the least active Think about this. Over the last 30 years, the stock market's given you about eight and a quarter percent on annualized over the last 30 years. If you're knocking off four percent of that and if inflation's three, three percent, like you're getting one percent real for all of this brain damage and heartache and activity. It's just not worth it. Like It's just not worth it. It's a very, very big deal over time. And it's, it's so frustrating to read that. And yet we think we can solve this with our brain. You make the point that our brain might not be cut out to be the best market investor. Yeah. So I, you know, I cite research that shows that our brain effectively hasn't had an upgrade in 200,000 years, which is a long time. You know, evolutionarily, it's not a, not a long time, but in terms of our developed financial markets, which are about 400 years old, developed stock markets are 400 years old. We're living in an iPhone 10 stock market with an <laughs> iPhone 1 or a Nokia flip phone type brain, and we're just outmatched. And you know, the other thing that I talk about in the book is that the brain accounts for 2 to 3% of your body weight, but it accounts for 25 to 30% of your metabolic expenditure in a given day. So there's a huge mismatch between how big your brain is and how calorically expensive it is. And so your body is always trying to look for ways to shut down your thinking. You're always looking for ways to try and streamline your cognitive processes. And so we rely on things like listening to other people, you know, looking at experts on TV, seeing what the shoeshine boy does or what your neighbor's doing or just doing what you've already done. Like all of these are sort of ways we can exert less cognitive power. And so that's never going to change. Your brain is always going to be an outsized expense for your body. And you just can't help the fact that your brain is always looking to think less. And it's not a good look for investors. That brings up a couple of tangential things that I don't think that you address specifically in the book, but but I wanted to ask you about, it seems that makes it more important than ever for an investor to work out. As I was reading you writing basically what you just said, I thought, how important then is it for us to keep our brain in the game, to have a lifestyle that allows us to think critically for longer periods of time? 
So one of the things that I wanted to do, especially in part one of the book, was address some of these externalities that impinge on our ability to make good financial decisions. You know, things like our brain, our, our body, the societies in which we live. And so back when I was a therapist, one of the most powerful pieces of advice that I would ever give people that they would roundly ignore 100% of the time was to, <laughs> was to do things like eat better and, and work out more. So like I would get people who would come into my office and say, hey, you know, I'm extremely anxious, I'm depressed. And you would ask about lifestyle things and they would go, well, you know, I drink eight liters of Diet Mountain Dew a day. And you would go, oh, well, ding, ding. I, I <laughs> think we found your problem. <laughs> you know, maybe your Red Bull habit is, you know, part of what's making you anxious. And they'd go, well, no, like say the magic words to me or give me the magic formula or give me a pill to make me less anxious. And you would go, here's your pill. Stop eating garbage you know, stop eating garbage, go work out. Like this is where to start. And it's a funny thing, but that is such great advice for investors too. Like being active, watching what you eat, making sure you have a life filled with positive relationships and kind people. Like these are not the kind of things that are going to be headline news on CNBC, but they are absolutely fantastic and under-considered words of financial wisdom. It's amazing that that would factor into it. But the second piece was also thinking about the brain and exhaustion and things that maybe maybe making our portfolio decisions first thing in the morning helps. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to knowing your timing. I cite a couple of studies in there that are pretty fascinating. One had to do with people who had to pee. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite. So they found that people who had to urinate made good financial decisions because of something called inhibitory spillover, <laughs> which is basically they're using their inhibition. They're, they're holding back in one part physically, right? They're holding back the need to urinate. And this led to a generalization in sort of restraint. And so we found people who needed to go to the bathroom and were exercising restraint physically were also more capable of, of exercising investment restraint, which would have candidly been sort of the opposite of what I would have hypothesized. So there's all sorts of things in the book that talks about, look, the state you're in, you know, how tired you are, uh, you know, how hungry you are, how happy or sad you are. All of these things play a material role in how you make investment decisions but you wouldn't attribute them to that. You would attribute them to internal things like your, your attitudes or your beliefs. This is a very consistent theme throughout the book is that we attribute our decisions to internal states when external states often influence them far more than we realize. And I want to get actually to a few of those because I find it Phenomenal, especially when we talk about combating our ego, combating uh, conservatism, combating emotion, those types of things, which are late in the book. But first, I've got, I've got one more kind of funny and telling story about how human we are, about how we deal with money splits. Remember this story, the one about $100 on the table and how we split it, which shows kind of how our brains don't think about this as logically as we probably could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's say you and I walk into a lab where the researchers say, hey, look, we've got $100 here. 
Uh, one of you is the proposer, one of you is the responder. So the proposer uh, proposes a split of the money and the responder has full power to approve or disapprove of the split. So before we even engage in this, like let's think about what the rational response is. If you give me a penny, that's a penny that I didn't have a second ago and I should take it. Like if if you're the proposer and the split <laughs> you propose is, you know, $99 for for Joe, $1 for Daniel, like I should take that because it's a dollar I didn't have before. Just as an aside yeah. by the way, just as a aside not to cut you off, that didn't even cross my mind. The way that you wrote it in the book, you wrote it so that it was 99 and one versus 50, 50. I'm like, Oh, I, I would never take 99 one. That's horrible. Yeah. No one takes 99 and one. That's what the research says. You've got to approach parity before people say yes. You know, when you think about it, if you offered me a 75, 25 split, like 25 bucks, like that's a nice lunch, right? right? Like I should, <laughs> I should take that. And yet people say no, because they're they're concerned about emotions like fairness and justice over the the sort of cool rational dollars in my pocket and i cite research in the book that shows that money has more of an excitatory effect on our brains than uh, thinking about death than thinking about sex like money money gets us off of equilibrium faster than you know drugs sex rock and roll and the, anything else you can think of we are weirder and more emotional about money than we are about anything else in our lives we're not going to get to the way to fight all of these different things and build a very intelligent portfolio like you talk about in the book but i do want to make sure we peel off at least one part and do it well which is this idea of fighting our ego how do we fight? Because everything you and I have talked about for the last 15 minutes has been how our ego, how our humanness gets in the way. How do we fight against that to create a better portfolio? So I think there's a couple of ways. I think, what, you know, first of all, we can reflect on poor decisions we've made historically. We can say, look, I'm not perfect. We can look back in our own histories and say, where have I made mistakes historically? And I have been on a couple of podcasts recently where they've asked me about my biggest money mistake. And I've found that a very freeing uh, exercise because, you know, I'm, I'm frequently called on to speak about what to do. It's been interesting and enlightening to me to be asked, where have you screwed up? And I think that that's something we can, we can all do uh, with ourselves. Uh, you know, a second thing that I really, really like is uh, something I stole from Richard Feynman, the, the physicist and the great decision-making theorist who told you to teach about toilets. And so the way that he did this, he would go around and ask people, uh, you know, do you know how a toilet works? And if you stop the average person on the street and ask them, do you know how a toilet works, which I would encourage your listeners to do, incidentally, most people are going to say, yeah, I get it. I use a toilet a couple times a day. It's not that complicated. Like, I get it. And he goes, oh, okay, good. Well, well teach me how it works. And then people go, uh, 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 you sort of sputter and mumble and go, well, gee, I guess I, I don't know how it works. And so one of the things that you can do that's an exercise in, in building humility is to become a teacher. And I'm sure you've learned this as a speaker, as a podcaster, you think you understand something until you're required to teach it to a small child, until you're required to simplify it or to speak in front of others about it. So the minute you start to feel arrogant about something, write a book about it, 
write a blog post about it, go speak about it. And I can promise you, your, your ego will be brought right back into check. I think half of that is just knowing yourself, Daniel, and thinking about like, how cocky am I about this investment decision? If, if I'm pretty cocky about it, then, then you, maybe you get a little worried. Yeah, the, the tricky part is, though, I talk about something called Dunning-Kruger uh, Dunning syndrome in there. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's probably my favorite psychological phenomenon. It came about these, these two researchers, Dunning and Kruger, started studying why effectively stupid people are too stupid to know that they're stupid, if you will. And so the way that they became aware of this is a bank robber robbed a bank and covered himself in lemon juice. And then when the police caught him, he was baffled that they could see him because he had, as a child, done invisible ink with lemon juice. And he thought that if he covered himself in lemon juice, that he himself would become invisible. And so this is sort of the the original research. And what they found is basically that smart people are smart enough to pick out all of their small inadequacies and that people that aren't as bright tend to be more confident than bright people because they're actually not bright enough to see how stupid they are. And I think the same thing is true of overconfidence that, you know, if you ask people how overconfident they are, the most overconfident people in the world will say not at all. And the most humble people will go, you know, I can get a little cocky sometimes. <laughs> and so sometimes we need outside influences. We need like data and different things to check our decision making because we see ourselves through a glass darkly. We, we don't see ourselves perfectly at all. I like this idea of outside advisors on our team, people shining the light on our Achilles heel. Yeah, but you got to be willing to take that advice. <laughs> like you got to be willing to listen because very many people uh, are just shut down any sort of criticism. And it seems like that can be specific areas of our life. Like I could be super intelligent, I would think, in one area. And in another area, I'm a complete dumbass. Well, that's something that we need to realize. And, you know, you see this is another thing that checks overconfidence. Most people are overconfident when you ask them about vague constructs. If you ask people, are you smart? Most people go, yeah, I'm smarter than average because we as the general public have a pretty blurry concept of what it means to be smart. We go, oh, there's lots of different ways to be smart. You can be book smart or street smart or, you know, smart with nature or, you know, different kinds of things. So when when your definition is vague, people go, yeah, I'm I'm pretty good at that. I'm better than average. But if you ask most people, like, are you a good accountant or are you a good impressionist painter? They go, oh, no, 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 no. So the more, you know, another way to combat ego is to get as specific as you can about the thing you're trying to measure and say, look, you know, are you a good manager of money? You know, like, are you a good investment decision maker? And I think most people, if they're honest with themselves, have to say no and then take the appropriate steps to to remedy that. The book is a behavioral investor and you start off with all the things we talked about here today, which is the essence of being human and how it's awesome and it sucks at the same time. And then learning from that and combating not only your ego, but also conservatism, combating uh, or honing your attention, managing your emotion, and then building portfolios that uh, kind of, I, I guess, I don't know how you phrase this, Daniel, I guess, fight against your humanity. Portfolios that are humanity resistant. 
Yeah, I just trademarked that while you said it. So yes, <laughs> and the, don't and, you dare, listeners, don't you dare try and use that. That's my new business. And there we, humanity resistant TM. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And the book's available everywhere. Yeah, anywhere reputable. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, Amazon. Amazon's always easiest. If you, if you want to stoke my ego, buy it on Amazon because I check my sales rank every day. And I, I decide. <laughs> I decide whether or not I love myself that day based on how many people bought it. <laughs> Which uh, you can learn more about in chapter four of your own book there, big guy. But the, <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us and, uh, and congratulations on another book well done. Yeah, man. My pleasure. Hey there, you fine looking trivia lover, you. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm sure tonight's been on your calendar forever. After all, it's the annual Rockefeller Center tree lighting. Joe's mom puts marshmallows in hot chocolate. We all sit around the television watching. Been doing it every year since 1997 when they started televising it. Frankly, I, I think it's the best thing on TV besides that station that looks like a fireplace crackling. It's just so cozy. Which brings us to your trivia question. Which news network not only calls Rockefeller Center home, but also does the annual broadcast? I'll be back with your answer after this. We're so happy that Magnify Money supports Stacky Benjamins. You know, if you want to support yourself, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. I'm going to do that right now. And you'll hear me typing. And uh, when you go there, Magnify Money, boom, you're going to see there's all the best offers for balance transfers, cashback rewards, 0% interest credit cards, low interest credit cards, secured credit cards. People ask, by the way, why should I use these? And when should I use these? Well, a balance transfer is fantastic. If you think you can pay off a debt in a short amount of time and transfer over to a lower interest rate card, or maybe to a 0% card, that's where that comes in handy. The cashback reward is fantastic for somebody who pays their bill in full every month. In fact, uh, I was just speaking with uh, Lorana Mrani from Debitize. And if you're somebody that um, usually pays on time, but sometimes forgets to pay the whole thing, Debitize is a cool fintech tool for you to use. Check them out. We're going to have Laurent on fairly soon, reminding people about that. But uh, cashback rewards, fantastic. In fact, Nick at Magnify Money told me recently that if you're getting less than 2% cash back, you're leaving money on the table that, uh, that you could easily get. Low interest credit cards, of course, are great for somebody who's paying too much interest to the man. A secured credit card, one of my kids started with one of those. It was weird, so they're twins and they had exactly the same credit, but uh, one was offered a secured card, the other one went with a Discover card. And you know how they did that? They went with a blog post about establishing credit at Magnify Money. So those are the different types of cards out there. And I'll tell you, credit card rewards, though, uh, excuse me, not rewards, but credit card payoff programs where you're lowering the interest rate by, by balance transfer comes with a significant Achilles heel. And that's this. If you don't pay it off and you instead run up the card, you now have more credit open and it can be super dangerous. So instead, for some people... I prefer a personal loan where you can then cut up the card and make sure that you don't have the credit available. Of course, credit utilization scores help your uh, credit significantly. I believe it's 30% of your overall credit history, but ignore all that. None of that matters if you don't pay off your bill on time. 
So there's all that and more checking accounts, savings accounts, student loan refinance, all kinds of great stuff at Magnify Money. Use our link, please, to tell them that we sent you because that's how we keep podcasting. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. Welcome back, Trivia Elves. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Is it too early to start using that ho-ho-ho thing? Why? Hey, here's a question. Who's the second and third ho? Maybe we'll solve that riddle later, but for now, how about a trivia answer for you straight from my workshop? Here was your question. What network not only calls the Rockefeller Center home, but also broadcasts the annual tree lighting live? The answer? The National Broadcasting Company, better known as NBC the more you know. Nailed it. Congratulations. You're a trivia guru. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was a softball. That was an underhanded blooper ball pitch, to be honest with you. I don't know. Richie didn't know it. So there you go. Richie didn't know what, what broadcast in Rockefeller Center. <laughs> he, he had no idea which one it was. Um, he knew that there was a tree. So we got him halfway there's there. a pretty gosh darn big tree and an ice skating rink. Sometimes I think that Richie and Paula Pant are related, hmm. just based on I think, that. I think Paula would know the answer to that, though. I, I, I seriously, I don't know. I'm going to have to ask her. Hey, enough of that. Let's throw out the Haven Lifeline. We're going to tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Well, as we're just about to finish it up, the thing I value the most right now is weak old pumpkin pie. It's still in the fridge. <laughs> But when it separates from the crust and all you have to eat is the pumpkin part, that's the best. Ours didn't make it. Ours didn't make it that far. Ours is long gone. Oh, well, you have, to, you have to, the key is to make another set of pumpkin pies on Sunday. My, that, is, that is the key. Because I was going to say, all mine found a good home, if you know what I mean. It's actually your loved ones and your time. But you can actually have loved ones and time over pumpkin pie, can't you? It's why they created a modern way. To buy quality term life insurance by modern way, I mean that their application's easy to complete online. They offer instant coverage decisions, no waiting several weeks for a decision, lovely customer service, that kind of thing. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Great time of year to do that as we're thinking about the holidays and family. Get that stuff done. But today, getting it done is our new friend Chuck. Say hi, Chuck. Joe and OG, I listen to your program. Every time it comes out, I have for the last six months. I really enjoy it. I have a question. Is it possible to take money out of a Roth IRA and use it as a down payment on a rental home if the rental home is still in the Roth IRA? Thanks a lot. Looking forward to hearing from you. If the rental home is still in there, that's when he caught me right there. Hey, Chuck, thanks for the question. Can you take money out of a Roth IRA to use for a rental property? Well, I think his question is, is there a penalty to do that? The smart ass answer to his question is, yeah, sure. I mean, you can take your money out of anything for anything, technically. But I think he means, is there a penalty to do so? You can withdraw $10,000 out of your Roth IRA for the down payment on your first home without a penalty. So if this is a property that you're going to occupy, maybe it's a duplex that you can claim as, you know, 
partially your home, you know, rent, rent half, live in half, and it's your first home, then that would be fine. If you're doing it for a down payment of a second or third or whatever rental property, then you can always take out your contributions of the Roth without any penalty, but any gains you'd have to pay a 10% penalty on if you are under the age of 59 and one half years old. There are some very esoteric ways of doing real estate inside of IRAs. And there's going to be like the six people that listen to the show that do this and who have it wired and are like, oh, no, you can do it. And you just have to do it. Okay. It's possible. But you and I know about more times than not how that just blows up in everybody's face. So, so I would never in a trillion years put a rental property inside of my IRA or Roth IRA. There are so many rules around doing that. Foremost of which is that the money can't come directly through you. It, just to give you an idea, money in and out of it can't come directly to you or from you. It has to be through a custodian because you cannot touch anything and you can't visit that property. You, you, you got to be so careful. Yeah. What happens if you buy it and two months into it, you've got to put a new roof on. So, you know, you, you've got to put 20 grand into the, into the building to, to put in like, what can you do a $20,000 IRA contribution? Of course not. You know, so, so now you got to get into like loaning your IRA money from you and then the IRA pays interest. And it's just, it's a giant, giant, giant mess ready to get blown up by the IRS at any point in time. And, and the problem with, this or any of these strategies that involves an all or nothing scenario is that the nothing side of it is the IRS disqualifies the whole thing from day one. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You screwed this up today, but this has been in force for 10 years. We go back 10 years. None of this happened. We just, we just assume it didn't happen. It's just like uh, one of the more popular ways for taking money out of a qualified plan prior to 59 and a half is a SEPP plan. Uh, substantially equal periodic payments. Rule 72T says that you can take out the same amount every year for five years or until you're 59 and a half, whichever is greater, without any penalty. Well, the penalty for screwing that up is it goes back to day one and says, yeah, none of this counted the correct way. So when you get into any scenario with the IRS that the penalty is we backdate this to infinity and charge you a trillion dollars of interest and penalties. It's a really bad, bad idea. So long story short here, Chuck, I would not use your Roth IRA for down payment on a rental property unless it was your first home and it's a home that you're going to live in and you can use 10,000 for, for the down payment on that. But otherwise I'd pass. Thanks for the question, Chuck. And guess what Chuck's getting? Chuck's getting some swag. Because the greatest money show on earth circus that is Stacky Benjamin's t-shirt. Uh, how do you get one of those? Call the Haven Lifeline, stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. But we also get letters down here in the basement. And uh, Brooke asked this one. I recently received a small raise of $1,200 a year annually. I'm salaried, so this translates to $100 a month. I'm not yet maxing out my Roth contributions or employer 401k match. So I feel the wisest thing to do would be to put that extra money directly into my Roth. 
which would max out my Roth contribution and get me another 33 cents per dollar in employer match contribution. However, I do also have some credit card debt to the tune of $4,500 at an 18% interest rate. I'm debating whether I should use the marginal pay increase to pay off that high interest debt at $100 extra per month or further fund my retirement. My thought is to fund the retirement because otherwise I'm forfeiting free match dollars and because of the impact of compounding interest. If I continually invest the extra $1,200, that seems to have a much better return than simply using the money to pay off debt, especially since my debt will be gone within 18 months. But the funds, if invested, continue to grow long term. I feel the real rate of return is much better if I invest the funds, but I'm hoping you can make a recommendation. Brooke. Thanks for the question, Brooke. What do you think, man? So my formal recommendation is going to be to pay off the debt as fast as possible. You're going, you, you said you're going to pay it off in 18 months. Well, great. Guess what? Now you're actually going to pay it off in eight months or 10 months or whatever. So hallelujah. If it makes you feel better to do half and half, do half and half. This is kind of the slippery slope of savings versus paying off debt where the excitement of the future sounds so much better than paying for the sins of the past right? It's just like, oh, well, I can, this, this is a way better thing for me to do to get my employer match. You got to take your medicine at some point in time. And now is the time to do it because not only can you save the interest, but when you get the debt paid off, now you'll have the payment that you're paying on the credit card plus the hundred a month that can all go into savings all at one time. So even if there's a slight delay in kind of that crossover point of where does it work out, in your best interest from a cash-on-cash return standpoint, I think at the end of the game, you end up with way more money rather than dragging this out. You know, uh, math-wise, she is correct. She gets a 33% return there, which is higher. I agree with you because if she's not excited about paying off the debt, but she is excited about investing the money, I bet she gets that debt paid off even faster. I bet she finds a way to get it just gone because she's so excited about the investment behind it. You ever have that thing like your mom said you can't have any ice cream until you clean your room? That kind of thing. Or in our case. You put you all can- your toys in the closet and close the door. Smart. <laughs> you, just, you just shove them under the bed. Done. Uh-huh. Got done, that done. Clean. But you got it done fast. You got it done yep. fast. You got stuff done fast because you want whatever the treat is at the end. If for Brooke, the treat at the end is the higher rate of return to get where she wants to go and gets rid of the debt, hopefully for good then uh, I think she wins there too. Well, like Dr. Crosby talks about, you know, finance is not necessarily always dollars and cents, right? It's much more behavioral than that. So let's pay the debt off and then get to it. Yeah. Great question. Thanks for the question, Brooke. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybedjamins.com. The only difference between Brooke and Chuck is that Chuck's taking on the t-shirt because he called the Haven Lifeline and that's stackybedjamins.com forward slash voicemail. That's going to do it for today. Hey, if you need help in your corner, uh, OG has a waiting list of people waiting to talk to him in 2019. If you want to get on that list, stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG for better financial help in your corner. We also get reviews of this here podcast, and this one's going on Mom's Fridge. This review is from Randy P1000. Five stars, now addicted. Is P1000 another uh, workout thing? Yes. Yes. 
when I first started listening to financial podcasts, AccuBenjamins was just another face in the crowd. As I've listened more, the show has emerged as my favorite in the personal finance space, and I now listen to every episode. Joe's an engaging host, and the show's mix of useful advice, intriguing guests, entertaining panelists, e.g. Paula Pant, and corny humor. Corny? Make the Stacky Benjamins an easy breezy listen. Thanks. Thanks, Randy, for the for the review. And mom's got that one on the refrigerator upstairs. That's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what did we learn today? First, take some advice from our friends at Morningstar. Not all HSA plans are created equal. You don't have to keep all your money in your plan with your work, just like you would with your other savings. Find a great home for your HSA instead of just the one that's presented. Second, follow Dr. Daniel Crosby's lead and ask yourself if you're in your own way as an investor. Automate as much as possible and you won't step on your own results. But the big lesson... Don't ask any of the brain trust around here what IDK means. I asked Joe and he said, I don't know. And then I asked OG and he said, I don't know. Guys are idiots. Can someone please tell me what IDK means, please? Because I don't know. Special thanks to Dr. Daniel Crosby for joining us. You'll find his book, The Behavioral Investor, wherever books are sold. Stacking Benjamin supports independent bookstores, and if you'd like to also support one and help out the show, buy Dr. Crosby's book using this link. It's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Powell's, spelled P-O-W-E-L-L-S. Thanks, everyone, who already has. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I swear the worst part about coming over to Joe's mom's house is having to put on pants. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. You're having some fun following uh, following a new feed on Twitter. The DPRK news service. It's pretty funny. But tell everybody what that is, because I've got one too, by the way. It's a uh, parody account of the People's Republic of Korea, right? So North yeah. Korea. So here's one. It's got a picture, picture of Chris Christie. And it says, Chris Christie described as man of great gravity.
The one above it says, Chris Christie is called political heavyweight, dwarfing all other contenders. And it's the picture of him on the beach, if you remember. <laughs> yes. That one that <laughs> kind of ruined his presidential bid. Um, but some of the ones lately, they're talking about Stan Lee. Oh, yeah. Um, lately. You mean two weeks, three weeks ago? <laughs> right. Dear leader Kim Jong Il was real life model for Stanley Stanley creation, the Silver Surfer. <laughs> right. I follow one. You have to follow this one. It's it's crap local news. Oh, nice. And these are just fantastic. This is from uh, Breaking News back in August. This is th- this is a UK based publication, by the way. OG Shopper says man kicked him in the shin for no reason. It's a two minute read. You know how they they tell you how long it takes to read the piece? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, police hunt dad after assault at Peppa Pig gig. A woman leading Peppa Pig fancy dress characters into a children's show was attacked by an angry dad. She was directing costume staff to an indoor picnic area when a child bumped into George Pig and fell over. Dyfed Powie's police said a parent reacted by repeatedly slamming a fire door into the woman to stop her entering the building. <laughs> no injuries were sustained during the incident. A spokeswoman said police want to speak to anyone who witnessed the assault at Folly Farm Adventure Park near Sanders foot. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like the one from a little while ago on that one. Tom McEldrin, who asked to remain anonymous. <laughs> Police called after a car drives in and out of a cul-de-sac. Like that's when you've got nothing else to print. Yeah. It's like the best the next door. Just, just horrible. Council must hear our concerns, says the deaf community. So bad. These are funny. That's terrible. That's terrible. All right. Try those. Uh, crap local news and, and uh, yours is uh, DK. DPRK new D- service. DPRK new service. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. <laughs> 